So we're going to talk about uh, growth uh, over the next couple days. So we're going to be looking at, since uh, we just do these lectures, uh, we're going to be looking at microbial growth and then how we control microbial growth, or at least attempt to. Um, and then I have to look and see if infectious disease is on the next hand. I have to look at that and work on the series. So that's what we're going to be covering. Okay, so we've grown stuff in the lab, so you have some idea about this. Okay, so uh, basically when we talk about microbial growth, we're talking primarily about an increase in the numbers uh, by cell replication, which is binary fission for, for the uh, bacteria. Now, we've also seen that if you start off with a single organism and you uh, have something like uh, an auger plate, that, that the result of that growth is a single very specific colony that you can see, all of which are derived ideally from that single initial colony forming cell. Right? Uh, at least that's what usually we're trying to look for. Now, so we're going to look at what are the requirements for growth. And we have a lab coming up after, uh, after the break uh, where we're going to actually look at this lab. We're going to uh, put uh, four different bacteria on different kinds of auger plates and then see what, what, uh, who can grow on what. Alright, so uh, there are a lot of common nutrients, just like we have. I mean, after all, they're living things. They have many of the same things. Uh, we have uh, macromolecules, okay, so there we're, there we're looking at, uh, which require carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, sulfur, okay. These are essentially macronutrients, if you will, and that's probably what I should, should change that to say macronutrients. Uh, so these are basically our nutrients that you need a lot of. Okay, we all know that what, you know, if you go to a nutritionist, they can tell you what those are for humans. And, uh, and if you go to a place that makes pet food, they can tell you what they are for various pets. And that's their job. Uh, and how they provide them is another issue, perhaps. But uh, that's what they're going to do. So uh, we have macronutrients. Uh, okay. Then we have nutrients that are required in very tiny amounts. Often we call these trace elements, if they're elements. But they might not be elements. They might be smaller molecules, uh, and those are micronutrients. And you can see a list of them there. We don't normally think about needing aluminum or manganese or zinc or copper, well, zinc, copper, cobalt. These are often used as uh, cofactors with enzymes. And so you don't need very much of them because they don't get used up. They're kind of recyclable within, within the organism. And the same would be true for bacteria. Now, uh, what we are looking for with any living thing is a source of carbon, okay? Because we are basically carbon-based organisms. Uh, proteins are carbon-based, carbohydrates are carbon-based, lipids are carbon-based, and carbon-based organisms. Uh, and from a chemical viewpoint, Carbon is the lightest element that can form up to four different chemical bonds and therefore can form large branching molecules. And it's the first one on the periodic chart that we use. Okay, 
Okay, the next one on the chart would be silicon. We have not found life based on silicon so far. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist somewhere, but it's never been seen. And the question starts to become, would you recognize it if it was there? You know, that's one of the problems with, with uh, looking for life elsewhere. Uh, if it's not like what we think life is, would we even know it if we saw it? Uh, that's, that's a problem. Now, we can divide organisms, and this works for bacteria, into two groups based on their carbon source. Uh, autotrophs use an inorganic carbon source. Now, so we're going to have to really get, and we have this in the lab we have, it's an important concept to get straight, inorganic versus organic carbon. Inorganic carbon comes from uh, just plain carbon atoms or carbon dioxide or methane. These are considered to be car uh, inorganic carbon atoms. They have no hydrogens on them. Uh, methane is all, it has no oxygen on it. Uh, carbon dioxide has no hydrogen. They're considered inorganic molecules, okay? uh, at least from a biological perspective. Okay? And so autotrophs take these inorganic basic carbon sources, and they use some energy source to build them into larger, more complex. Okay? Uh, in other words, they don't need to eat anything. They make their own food. And of course, we're the, the thing that we are most used to thinking of our plants and algae. There are photosynthetic bacteria. Uh, <coughs> you see there's also some chemosynthetic bacteria that use other chemicals to make their own food. But for right now. So autotrophs are taking inorganic stuff and they're they're building building their own food molecules, their own complex. And that's the basis of, of all the food chains because somebody's got to do that. Now the heterotrophs can't do that. And so they have to find another organism that's already done that for them, and then they consume that organism and they use those complex molecules uh, to break down for energy and as building blocks for their own their own material. So we have autotrophs and heterotrophs. And you can find these in the higher organisms. Plants are obviously autotrophs, animals are heterotrophs, fungi are considered heterotrophs. Bacteria, you will find both types. And this is one of the unique things about the bacteria is you find all different kinds of uh, metabolic uh, organisms here. Okay, so that's one. That's based on, on uh, the carbon source. Okay. It also can break them down based on their energy source. And I'll do the second one first because that one is going to be clear. Uh, we can call them phototrophs, and this usually they're using light energy. Okay, that's our synthesis. That's what, what that's all about. Taking energy from sunlight and using that to build inorganic molecules into larger molecules. Okay. Chemotrophs, on the other hand, are taking chemicals in their environment or from other organisms and using those as their energy source. That's what we do. We eat other things, we break those down, and we use that as energy source. Okay. Now, Essentially, autotrophs, as I said, use inorganic carbon. Heterotrophs are usually using organic carbon sources, complex organic molecules. 
can break it, you can also break it down a little bit farther. Then you can make a little chart here. Um, I can have photoautotrophs. We mentioned that. Okay, so these guys are using sunlight to take inorganic molecules and build a larger molecule. I can also have chemoautotrophs. These guys are using uh, uh, carbon dioxide, but they are getting their energy from uh, these molecules, nitro nitrogen, sulfur, uh, or sometimes hydrogen. They're able to get energy from them. And some of the archaea uh, work, work that way. So I have photoautotrophs, chemoautotrophs, depending on uh, the, the sources. And then if we're using organic compounds, which is the hetero part, I can have photoheterotrophs, which we normally don't talk about. These are organisms that get their energy from light, uh, but they still consume other organisms for the organic molecules. And there's a couple of uh, types of bacteria. So they're still doing photosynthesis, but there, uh, there's the non-sulfur and then there's purple non-sulfur. Uh, these would be sulfur bacteria here um, and some of the archaea. And then lastly, we have chemoheterotrophs, which is animals one guy, protozoa. Uh, and we're using uh, chemical compounds in the environment as our energy source and organic compounds in the environment as our carbon source. So you can kind of put them into four categories. And there are actually a couple of other categories that we'll mention, but these are the four main categories. So if I tell you that something is a, is a chemoautotroph, or let's uh, use a better one, a photoheterotroph, you should be able to tell me it gets its energy from light and it gets its carbon source from other living things already Okay, now there are two uh, or groups of organisms that are based entirely on their source of electrons. Um, most of the organisms we've talked about are considered to be organotrophs. It means they get their electrons from organic molecules like we do. Remember we break down glucose, we harvest electrons, we use them to make ATP. There are a few that get their electrons instead of uh, from organic molecules, they get them from uh, inorganic uh, they're called lithotrophs. Litho refers to rocks. Uh, they are—they actually can harvest electrons from minerals and rocks. They have drilled. Uh, well, they periodically. We have some big experiment where they drill into the Earth's crust, trying to. You know, and we've never gotten all that deep so far. Which may be a good thing. We don't know. But even a mile down, when they bring up sediment, and, you know, in the cores in the uh, in, in the drill. Uh, there are bacteria in them. Okay. So these guys are clearly lithotrophs. They're using, they're getting their energy from from uh, chemicals in the in the rock. So they're everywhere. Okay. Bacteria, literally everywhere. Okay. Now we also have some other issues. Uh, one is what are the oxygen requirements? Okay. Now, if I'm an obligate aerobe. That means I must have oxygen. Well, that's what we are. We're obligate aerobes. There are some bacteria that are obligate aerobes. They must have oxygen or they don't grow. And they die. Okay. Now, it turns out that oxygen is deadly to uh, obligate anaerobes. Obligate anaerobes means that they have to, they cannot even have oxygen around. Okay. And the reason is 
that oxygen reacts with chemicals to form toxic, uh, oxidizing uh, uh, chemicals that basically are damaging to the cell. Now, we don't have a problem with this because, well, I mean, we form these toxic <coughs> chemicals all the time, every day, all day long, and they're part of your metabolism. But we have enzymes that immediately break them down. I mean, like right now. Uh, uh, they initially get broken down, uh, the uh, oxygen radicals get broken down into hydrogen peroxide, which is not real great stuff either. And then we have another enzyme that breaks the hydrogen peroxide down into oxygen and water. Well, if you don't have those enzymes to do that, then these free radicals are going to damage the cell and it will ultimately kill them. And so obligate anaerobes cannot even be around oxygen. One of the ones that is a, a pathogen is the organism that causes gas gangrene, Clostridium protrinus. It's an obligate anaerobe. It only grows in dead tissue. If the tissue is alive, it's oxygenated, it will not grow. So it grows where people have had wounds. The uh, dead tissue has not been removed. That's where it will grow. Get started, it will kill nearby tissue, and then you end up with what we used to call blood poisoning, but it's basically a septic. So these are the toxic forms of oxygen. You don't need to memorize these. Uh, peroxide, uh, hydroxyl radicals, peroxide. Yeah, these are all, these are the ones that we need to get rid of right away. Okay, now one of those things, the tests that's done frequently with microorganisms is called a catalase test. Catalase is the enzyme that breaks down hydrogen peroxide. So if you have cells that make catalase and you expose them to hydrogen peroxide, they will break it down to oxygen and water, and you will see bubbles form. They're bubbles of oxygen. If you've ever put hydrogen peroxide on a wound, it just bubbles like crazy in the wound. And what it's doing, what's happening is in the wound, you have damaged cells, the catalase has been released, the catalase is breaking down the hydrogen peroxide as fast as it can. And then you get oxygen bubbles. Evidence that those are there. Okay. Now, these are the classic uh, groupings for oxygen requirements that we want to look at. Okay, so first of all, our aerobes, obligate aerobes, we just have already mentioned, have to have oxygen. Cannot grow without it. Anaerobes do not use oxygen. If they're obligate anaerobes, they can't even be around oxygen because it harms them. Then we have facultative anaerobes. Yeast is an example. Uh, e. coli is an example. And these are cells that will happily use oxygen when it's present. They'll do aerobic respiration happily. But the moment you take the oxygen away, they will switch their metabolism to fermentation. And they will survive through fermentation. They're called facultative anaerobes. Or excuse, yeah, anaerobes. They only go into the anaerobic phase when there's no oxygen available. But they can do that if they need to. So E. coli does that, uh, yeast does that, we're missing a couple of examples. Then we have aerotolerant anaerobes. These are, these are strictly anaerobic, but they have one of the enzymes that breaks down some of these toxic radicals and they can, they can deal with the oxygen. They don't use it, 
They don't want it, but it doesn't bother them. And so we call them aerotolerant. And then we have microaerophiles, which basically, if you look at the word, these are organisms that will use oxygen, but they only want small amounts. They don't want a lot, they want it in tanks. And that's what they're having. So if you were to group, classify um, bacteria based on their oxygen requirements, these are the, the, uh, the different categories. Now, here what they've done, and this is just as an example, uh, they have a, uh, this is a broth uh, arrangement here, uh, loose fitting cap so that oxygen can get in, right? Okay, we did that in lab. Um, obligate aerobes are all gonna cluster up around the top surface because they need oxygen, and that's where they're gonna be. Or obligate aerobes, excuse me. Obligate anaerobes are all gonna go to the bottom, get as far away from any oxygen as they possibly can. So you tend to find them all down at the bottom. Facultative anaerobes, you'll find more up near the top because they do like oxygen and they will use it and it does means they grow faster. But you'll find some of them down here too because they can do fermentation and baking changes. And then aerotolerant anaerobes you would find kind of equally distributed all over because they do care less. Now if you have microaerophiles, which they don't have on this slide, um, they would tend to be not at the surface, but just maybe down here below the surface where there's less oxygen, but there's still oxygen there. This is just another way to see, to illustrate the different types of oxygen requirements. Okay, now, so that's oxygen. And oxygen is primarily involved with metabolism, right? uh, in one way or another. We also have nitrogen requirements. All, all living things have nitrogen requirements. We get our nitrogen by eating other things. Uh, that's how we get it. Plants get nitrogen from bacteria who put it into a form that plants can use. Um, and because if you don't have enough nitrogen, then growth is going to slow down. What do we need to have nitrogen for? Which of macromolecules require nitrogen? Uric acid. No, that's a breakdown process of nitrogen. What do we have to have nitrogen to make? Okay, amino acids. Amino acids are the basic uh, building block for proteins. Amino acid. Amino means there's a nitrogen there. Remember, every amino acid had a nitrogen on one side and a, a carboxyl group on the other side, and then a, a hydrogen and then an R group, which is different on each of the amino acids. But they all have nitrogen on them, which is why when you are on a high protein diet and you're not able to utilize all of the protein that you've taken in, your body breaks it down and we break it into urea, uh, which is toxic. And so we further convert it into uh, uric acid and we get rid of it into the urine. I mean, that's where the, the name comes from. Uh, and so uh, some people, uh, my, my dad had the gout Uh, but he would eat certain foods that would produce a lot of nitrogen in his body and then he would get uric acid crystals would form and they would go to some of the joints, usually the ankles, because it was inflamed and very painful. And he just had to wait until 
um, there, but there are certain foods that were high in glutamine and potentially have very high in protein, and I like milk for tea like candy grow, which you end up we had liver and throw it off of that idea. And I actually like it. I don't have a problem. I guess, you know, it's what you grow up with, right? Uh, most people can't stand milk or not. But uh, but that was one of his favorites. And of course another one that Fortunately, it was not uh, life-threatening in any way. All right, so if you don't get enough nitrogen, you can't make proteins, or at least you're going to be slowed down. What else do we need nitrogen for to build? Well, there's four macromolecules. We already used one. That means there's three left. <laughs> Which one is it? Carbohydrates do not have nitrogen. They are strictly carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. Anybody want to? Yeah, nucleotides. The nucleotides that are used to build nucleic acids have nitrogenous bases in them. Remember adenine, guanine, cytosine? They all have nitrogen in them. And so nitrogen is an essential nutrient for us to be able to build nucleic acids and proteins. Now, so if you have insufficient nitrogen, this is going to slow down growth. Um, nitrogen can be gotten from either organic or inorganic nutrients uh, for bacteria. Uh, we can't. We can only get it from organic. Uh, and plants are the same way. But bacteria can do either one. Some bacteria, not, not all of them. Uh, okay, so all cells recycle the nitrogen from these uh, structures here. But plants are the basis of all of our food. Plants cannot use atmospheric nitrogen. Uh, the problem with atmospheric nitrogen is nitrogen, two nitrogen molecules together form three covalent bonds holding them together. They don't come apart, not easily. You gotta really work like crazy to get them apart. Plants don't know how to do that. But certain bacteria that grow in the soil and have associations with the roots of plants are called nitrogen-fixing bacteria. And what they are able to do is they use the energy and they borrow energy from the plant. They get ATP from the plant. They get nutrients from the plant. And they will rip those two nitrogen atoms apart and form them into ammonia, which then the plant can take up and use. And ultimately, that's how we get nitrogen. Nitrogen-fixing bacteria. It only, I won't say it's the only way we get nitrogen uh, in a form that living things can use. Lightning also will catalyze some of that. But if you're waiting for an electrical storm to do that for you, you're going to wait a long time, probably. So uh, so the, the nitrogen is really important, uh, of nitrogen-fixing bacteria. Um, and there are certain plants that do this. Uh, not all plants. There are only certain ones. All of the legumes, so uh, soybeans, uh, alfalfa, clover, uh, they will, when you plant those and grow them and then you harvest them, there will be more nitrogen in the soil than there was when you started because they form this. Corn, on the other hand, doesn't do this at all. And if you grow corn in the same place for without chemical fertilizers for two or three years, your yield starts to drop way down because there's no longer enough nitrogen in the soil. So that's, that's the reason behind the old process of rotating crops. You grow corn in an area, and the next year you grow soybeans there, or alfalfa, which you can 
cut down and feed your animals or, or whatever, uh, or, or clover. Uh, and you would rotate so that the soil didn't get depleted. Today, what we do is we go out and buy chemical fertilizers and dump them on the ground. So, uh, not sure that's So other chemical and uh, requirements here, phosphorus, sulfur. Sulfur is used, uh, well, phosphorus is used in, a, yeah, you have a question? Um, it's in the roots of the plants. Yes, the bacteria actually will enter into the plant cells and the plant will build a little structure that the, the bacteria live in. Uh, they're, they're called nodules or nodes and you Large enough to see with the naked eye. Yeah. And that's where the bacteria live. Okay. Okay. Phosphorus required, what do we need? Well, we need phosphorus for it. Thank you for reminding me. What holds nucleotides together? Phosphates hold nucleotides together. Uh, ATP? Phospholipids that yeah. your membranes are made out of. You know, phosphorus is, a, is an important nutrient. Uh, sulfur is a nutrient. It's used primarily in amino acids. Certain amino acids contain sulfur. Uh, and then there's the micronutrients. And then there is a class of things that are called growth factors. Um, these are organic chemicals that certain organisms cannot make and we have to provide to them. As an example, we have uh, maybe it's six amino acids that we cannot make. We have to get them in our diet. Okay. Uh, there are bacteria that have similar kinds of requirements. They're using certain things they cannot synthesize and therefore it must be in their, in their diet in order for them to be able to make it. Those are called growth factors because they won't die without it, but they're not going to grow. And if you add it, you get exactly what Okay, and so here are some of the growth factors. Uh, certainly amino acids could be cholesterol. Uh, particularly certain types of bacteria need that cholesterol for the cell membranes. So we use cholesterol in our cell membranes. Cholesterol is, a, is an essential nutrient. Okay, it's used uh, to strengthen cell membranes. It's used to make uh, hormones. Of course, uh, it's in the uh, electron transport system, and of course, we have it in hemoglobin, in red blood cells. Uh, NADH, niacin, okay, you can just read down through the list. You'll notice there's a lot of B vitamins there. Uh, and so, B vitamin deficiencies usually result in a slow growth. There's somewhere I've had to add my memorandum. That's just a table you can, I'm not expecting. So these are nutritional requirements, growth requirements, nutritional growth requirements, and we've just gone over them. Right? So now we're going to look at physical requirements for bacteria, and the first one is temperature. Okay, temperature is if you change the temperature, your proteins will change their three-dimensional shape. It's called denaturing. It's what happens when you fry an egg. Okay, the white which is clear liquid, turns into a hard white substance. You have denatured the proteins that make that up. Uh, egg white is mostly protein, uh, which is one of the reasons it's really good for you, right? 
there's argument over in the middle part and all sorts of other stuff. So that's, you'll find different people with different opinions. Ex-wife's uncle had a farm in Iowa. He had bacon and eggs for breakfast every day of his life. They, they had their own chickens, they raised their own, you know, they had their own eggs, they raised some hogs, they fed them, you know, killed and killed. He had bacon and eggs every day of his life. And he said, ah, oh, this can't be anything. You go to a, a, get a physical and your cholesterol is high and your blood test, the doctor's going to get all excited. Just the way it works. And part of what your cholesterol level is is not, a, is not dietary. Cholesterol is so important that if you have a deficiency, your body will manufacture it because it's important. People who do all the right things. They don't eat any high cholesterol foods. They, all, they exercise, go to the doctor, and their cholesterol is right on high. And this is just genetic. There's not a lot they can do about it. Um, other people can eat anything, and their cholesterol doesn't go up too much. It just depends on, on the individual. Okay? But, uh, everybody is different in that respect. Um, and so that's when you can't get your cholesterol level down by diet and or Lipitor, Restor, that's what all of those do. Uh, they reduce the amount of cholesterol. Okay, so um, the uh, also the uh, cell membranes, which contain lipids, are also sensitive to temperature. If it gets too cold, they become fairly, they become rigid and they break, fragile. Too high, they become too fluid and then they don't hold together well. Temperature is critical for any living organism. Now. Most organisms have a, an optimum temperature. And then if you go above or below that, they don't do very well. And this is just one example here. Um, this uh, particular, I, I don't know if this is E. coli, it looks like it probably is. Uh, optimum temperature is right here, about 37 degrees. Well, that makes sense. Where do they live? They live in the intestinal tracts of mammals. It's going to be around 37 degrees centigrade, 98.6. Um, and so for pathogens, human pathogens, they're usually going to, this is usually going to be their optimum temperature because that's, you know, that's where they want to be. It's one of the reasons why a fever helps you because you raise the temperature and then they're not at their optimum anymore and it slows them down. Okay, now there are four categories. Okay, thermal, uh, let's start with mesophiles because these are the guys that uh, all our pathogens. You notice their peaks right around 37 degrees centigrade. Okay, and so these are these are kind of were originally thought to be in the middle. Over here you have psychrophiles. They want colder temperatures. They thrive at colder temperatures, uh, uh, down to even below uh, zero centigrade, okay, which is below 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, these uh, will grow in your refrigerator. They're quite happy. Uh, listeria is a pathogen that is a psychrophile. It grows okay at colder temperatures, and therefore, if it gets into food and it's refrigerated, it will continue to grow. Most bacteria, when you put something in the refrigerator, they stop. They don't die, but they stop growing immediately because it's cold. Yeah. If you put it at four degrees centigrade, which is what your refrigerator is supposed to be at, okay. Uh, you can see it's below the temperature here that any 
starting to get on the descending limb of these sacrophiles, but they can still survive. Okay, then we have thermophiles. They like it relatively uh, warm, up around, uh, between, around the, uh, between 65 and 70 degrees centigrade. And then you have hyperthermophiles that like temperatures that go actually above boiling point of water. These are the mostly archaeans, but not entirely. in those environments. Their structures, their proteins are made so that they will they will resist being denatured at these temperatures. Their cell membranes have things added to them to damage by these temperatures. And this is where they live. Now it's a tough life living in very uh, difficult conditions. Uh, the advantage is just guessing. One of the advantages is there's not a lot of competition. You don't have to share resources. So these are the four temperature ranges. And when we're talking about human pathogens, we're almost always talking about mesophiles. This is the, other than Listeria, which is down in here, we're mostly talking about mesophiles because that's the temperature that we are at. The mammals in general are somewhere close to this range. Now, that means that um, for a, a, a reptile, probably a little lower temperature. Because reptiles do not maintain These are some examples of psychrophiles. Uh, that snow there, that pink that you see in the snow, those are bacteria. There's bacteria growing right in the snow. Psychrophiles, okay. I love it. That's where they grow. Um, uh, this is a close-up of them. That's the, the reddish color comes from the cells. Okay, so this is the edge of a, a glacier right here. And they are happily growing at a very you know, low temperature in ice. Thermophiles, uh, the Yellowstone Park is a good place to see them. These are all thermal features at Yellowstone Park. Um, the, uh, the various hot pools uh, that you see here and here. This is an area where the water comes down and, and deposits minerals. The geysers, there are bacteria living in these areas. They're all, and in fact, the organism, the tap polymerase, which is the polymerase that's used in PCR, because you know, PCR you raise the temperature and you lower it, you raise it and you lower it, comes from an organism that a guy found in a thermal pool in Yellowstone Park. Okay, so you never know what you're going to find in these places. It's just a difficult place to work because the surface to get out to these is very iffy. It's got a crust on it occasionally, you can fall through, and uh, the water underneath. Why they have walkways there, and all the signs tell the tourists stay on the walkways. And of course, every year, some idiot goes out where people are. Uh, but it's, it is extremely dangerous. Well, if you're on the walkway, it's a safe spot. Beautiful place to go if you ever get a chance to see things. Uh, these thermal features, this is the, the primary place in the United States where you can see them. You can go to Iceland and see them.
were complaining because on our somewhere when we go to Europe and we have to fly back against the wind because we have a wind suppression. And they're just guessing and they're saying it's going to be eight and a half miles. Now that's a heck of a barrier to get to. So New Zealand needs to be a lot longer. How long does it take to get to New Zealand? What? How long does it take? It's over 12 hours. I, I, you can go nonstop. United States, you're going to be on the airplane for more than 12 hours. I don't know the exact time. And it just gets old. It's, it's not, you know, I don't know if any of you have ever had a chance to fly across the Asian Ocean. It's exciting the first time, and after that, it's just outrageous. Yeah. Yeah, see? Okay. Yeah. you got to get up and walk around. Uh, not good for you to be seated, seated for that long. Uh, it's, yeah, there are going to be very, very long. Just imagine 21 hours on the airplane. Better like the Christmas Eve music festival. <laughs> you don't know who's going to be there. So. Um, okay, but anyway, I would love to go to New Zealand. That, that would be fascinating. Okay, other physical requirements. And I, I think we're just about out of time here. I'll just mention this one, then we'll pick up here. Uh, is pH, okay, how acid and uh, acidic and basic it is makes a difference. Uh, most organisms are very sensitive to changes. Uh, our internal uh, body fluid, uh, both uh, the intracellular fluid and the blood, has a range of less than four, less than four tenths of a, of a pH level. If we go outside of those, we have problems. So about six, uh, about 7.2 to 7.45, or somewhere in there, that's where your pH is. So all organisms have this issue. Um, the hydrogen ions or the hydroxide ions will interfere. And so most, again, most of the organisms that are pathogens on us are going to be what we call neutrophiles. They like it pretty close to neutral, close to a pH of 7. Now, you will find as extreme acidophiles. Uh, there are organisms that will grow in a pH of 1. There are organisms in about 20% of the people in the around uh, that grow in a pH of 1.5 would be stomach acid. Uh, Helicobacter pylori is a human pseudopath. It's, it can be a pathogen. Other times it just seems to be there and it doesn't do any harm. But it lives in your stomach. It was one time it was always thought your stomach was sterile. Couldn't be anything living at that pH. But now we know that. And then you have, uh, for other acidophiles, go over to West Virginia where they've been, have uh, old, old coal mines where water comes running out of where there's a lot of uh, tailings. Sometimes you'll see that water is bright red. And this is from acidophiles. It's very acidic water, a lot of uh, uh, hydrochloric acid in it. And there are bacteria that stain the rocks around it red. And then you have alkaline files uh, as well. So we'll stop at that point for and uh, I will see you on Wednesday, and then we get a week off, or a week when you don't have to come to school. Let's put it that way. It's never off.
Choice. It goes by what letter you put down. I, can't. I didn't even put an H to it. I know. It's pretty obvious that you knew that. Yeah, I, just, I was looking at it and I was like, what? I didn't even put an answer. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can do that. Thank you. And we were, I guess we can go and talk about Okay, I have two things. Um, I did the like your the map on here and found that I was one fourteen out of Okay, um, let me see. Okay. Okay. Maybe make sure so we I added it right. The fourteen, the nine, the four, yeah. and then nine. Nine, seventeen. Yeah. And then ten and eleven. And then the six. And then I didn't I did it without the bonus and I got eighty plus the eight bonus. What did it give me one fourteen? Okay. So you got all twenty six points on the uh, no, I got all 28 points. Or, I mean, yeah, 26 out of 28. Okay, why don't you give me that, and I'll go over to make sure I get it right. And then another thing, once I realized that, was I did the math on the poll test. It's out of 121 points, not one. I thought it was 131. It looks like, so there might have been a question that was in there that was 9 points, okay, but it was Okay, I will, taken. thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. I will go back and look at that. Okay. I thought I had checked that. Okay, that was you things, but yeah, you can. And I'll oh. make sure I check. Okay. Check total. That would make a difference for everybody. Oh, yeah. yes. Yeah, it's technically not possible to get 100 as the test is right now. <laughs> okay, I will check that for you. All right, thank you so much. Did you I say you had a copy of it today, or would it be uh, next I, week on? Come to my office hour before class on, Thursday, on Wednesday. Wednesday? Okay. And I, I'll have one for you. I, I have to go to another class right now. I don't have time to go back. Oh, that's fine. I'm on yeah. vacation all this week. Oh, okay. How do you get vacation this week? I have no idea. Oh. It just worked out. I was kind of wishing it was last week. Could get, but, oh and, well. Yeah, and then next week you don't have to come to school, but you have to go back to work. No. <laughs> okay. All right, I will re-add them. 
I, I checked that because in my grade book it said 120. And I said, hmm. And I re-added them, and I got 131, which I just rounded down to 130. So I'll check that and see. Okay. Thank you so much. Yeah. Oh, no. You guys deserve the points if you earn them. Um, can we do the last question? I think this is oh.